the Space Show podcast will be on its annual summer hiatus for six weeks. In its place, we are pleased to present our summer series, Lunar Science in the Artemis Era. Lunar Science focuses on the science to be done on and around the Moon by both robotic missions and the crewed Artemis missions. Lunar Science Welcome to Lunar Science, the series in which we discuss the scientific investigation of the Moon and its environment in the Artemis era. Writer H.G. Wells foresaw the problem more than 100 years ago. Martians invade Earth, and the red plant nearly overwhelms the Earth. But the Martians, in turn, are overwhelmed not by the might of the Earthlings' military, but by the microbes of our planet. And so the idea of planetary protection was born. And that is our topic in episode 23. Now, planetary protection works both ways, protecting us from alien microbes and toxins and protecting the moon and planets from contamination by us. This program is based around a series of talks given in October of 2020. Kicking off the discussion is John Rumel of Friday Harbour Partners in Washington State with a history of lunar planetary protection. Uh, I'd like to remind people, you know, that there's a whole lot that we don't know about the Earth, let alone about the Moon. Your perspective, the current concepts of the Moon have historical roots, whether you're uh, Cyrano de Bergerac going to the Moon on his own, whether it's via Jules Verne and a very large cannon, uh, whether it's the Andromeda strain, uh, some people came in on that note, or the Sentinel uh, that's there for 2001, the Space Odyssey. A lot of people have different perceptions of the moon. I enjoyed the fact that Andy says we're going to drill down into this because drilling down into the lunar surface is exactly what made Apollo 14 have to continue the quarantine. Uh, it had a deep drill core, and the Interagency Committee on Back Contamination didn't know enough about the surface, let alone the subsurface, to go ahead and drop the quarantine until after Apollo 14. So things change, but things stay the same. The history of lunar exploration illustrates difficult issues associated with planetary protection, whether it's missions to the moon, missions to Mars, missions to wherever. But the moon stands out as the initial, I learned how I didn't know how to do that 
um, in particular with respect to the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, which crashed the first six Rangers uh, and used planetary quarantine considerations as the excuse for why it didn't work. Uh, although many of the things that uh, were put together were loose wires and a bunch of other things, because we were just learning how to send space probes, let alone things that crashed into the moon. The requirements for lunar missions attempt to overcome a great deal of ignorance about lunar conditions and life in the solar system. And trying not to be onerous, the application of those requirements was particularly noticeable during the initial Apollo uh, lander missions, 11, 12, and 14, in which back contamination protocols were not very good in the first place, but effectively abandoned thereafter. And there are some nuances on how they were abandoned, et cetera. So what did we do to protect the Earth from the moon uh, and the moon from the Earth? Serious discussions of back contamination requirements really started to take place in 1964 after a lot of prodding by Joshua Lederberg and a variety of others, as well as the Space Studies Board in 1960 started this out. Working from there in 1965, there were informal missions held between NASA and the US Public Health Service. And what surprised people was how disparate the view of the regulatory agencies were compared to the scientific community. The finding of PrEP pathogens on the moon was considered very low likelihood, but the responsibility was on the US Public Health Service. And the manned spacecraft center, now JSC, had plans for sample receiving facility, but had no idea how to handle astronauts after lunar exposure. So they started to learn how to do that in a very quick timeline. The plans were put together for what they call the Interagency Committee on Back Contamination to coordinate recommendations and requirements. Uh, in the background, of course, there was a US USSR competition, which was going to trump everything. Anyway, on NASA's behalf, the US Public Health Service presented a request to Congress to build a lunar receiving laboratory to take care of those astronauts and stuff that were brought back. Congress didn't like it at all, but it was much more authoritative being presented by US Public Health Service. Uh, and then NASA administrator put together this interagency committee on back contamination chaired by the US Public Health Service. Now, this was in NASA parlance, an advisory committee, something uh, associated with uh, regulatory agencies who were helping NASA. But the regulatory agencies had their own legislation that could be imposed at any time. So their advice was listened to as much as possible, given the uncertainties of the engineering achievements that were being attempted. So the ICBC had final authority over release of lunar samples and astronauts, but things had to get back in the first place. The investigation of lunar samples was protocol designed in a contract by Baylor University. It's known as the Baylor Protocol. And if you want to watch a snake eat lunar material, well, that's where you go to see that. A variety of different ways. So each phylum of terrestrial plants and animals were supposed to be exposed to lunar material. Uh, it didn't actually get to that point uh, in the final analysis, but outside of the protocol, the ICBC had other safety concerns. In particular, the opening of a valve to vent the capsule as it came down through the atmosphere. And oh, by the way, those guys in biological containment suits uh, in Apollo 11 in particular with nice filters, et cetera, they looked like they're perfectly set up for coronavirus. They got squirted with a high bleach solution and taken into a raft 
uh, but the capsule itself got the ocean washing in and out. Uh, and eventually, uh, they actually took all the water and threw it over the side of the Hornet. Um, so that's the way it went when uh, a Navy chief tells a Navy you know, seaman deuce to go ahead and siphon the water out of that capsule, he does that. Uh, so there was a, a lack of specific preparation time and high-level authority within NASA. Basically, Robert Gilruth, the Command Spacecraft Center, could overrule any of the in the ICBC requirements uh, just by studying them over and over again until it was time for the mission. So one of the interesting things, though, that they put together was a microbial monitoring program instituted in response to the requirements by the ICBC for the Baylor Protocol. They wanted to make sure that if they discovered a microorganism from the moon, it wasn't one of the ones that they took with them. And despite the lack of molecular tools, they thought they could do a real uh, useful job on this, in particular for operational medical purposes. Because if astronauts started getting sick, they wanted to be able to find out whether or not that was an Earth organism or it was an organism from the moon. And of course, you all remember from Apollo 13 that they weren't using a health stabilization program at the time, and sick people could go fly without knowing that they were sick, of course. If a terrestrial microorganism was found in lunar sample, they wanted to you know, rule that out. The later return of sterile lunar soil suggested that the preventative measures and handling of the samples were successful, but there are a variety of things that took place that made it kind of less likely that that was a, an overall situation. And one was the putative discovery of Streptococcus mitis in the Surveyor 3 camera body, uh, which was basically associated with bad handling. So this is a a couple of images from the Surveyor 3 microbial examination. If you want to see how not to do it, these guys are in short sleeve scrubs with the waistbands uh, flapping in the air. And that's a very hairy arm on the left and a guy climbing into the sterile hood on the right. Uh, and not surprisingly, the last sample taken uh, was the one that was Streptococcus mitis. I have another image someplace which shows a guy holding the floor up forceps up against his hairy arm. Uh, but basically, you hear that somebody had a lunar microbe that lived on the moon for a couple of years. It's not true. So two levels of back contamination that were of concern. One was the uh, operational medicine shorts, basically the uh, make sure that the pathogenic microorganisms uh, didn't cause the crewmen to get sick in a way that was unrecognizable. And then, of course, the Baylor protocol was done to protect all humankind. Uh, immediately after lunar samples were unpacked, the Lunar Receiving Laboratory had a variety of different places where you could go ahead and test to see if they were biologically hazardous. Uh, and the containment aspects of the quarantine program were discontinued after Apollo 14. The number of tests were then substantially reduced and the scope of testing further reduced. Uh, but they did do it for Apollo 14, even though Apollo 14 uh, was considered to be relatively equivalent to 11 and 12 in terms of the overall goals. 13 was supposed to go to the highlands. In Apollo 14, they were going to do a deep core and play golf. So anyway, uh, after the Apollo planetary protection status uh, was changed, uh, and planetary quarantine is what it was called until about 1983, 
the end of the Apollo missions, the potential for Florida contamination on the moon was judged to be nil. Uh, that was a, reported by Dave Vincenzi Stabakis and Baron Golds in their 1983 paper that recommended the categorization scheme. But it's also it was something from the National Research Council Space Studies Board at the time. In the uh, that paper, back contamination category five missions to other worlds were operate at the same level of caution regardless of returning to Earth or the moon. At that time, NASA's Planetary Quarantine slash Protection Office was trying to make the Earth and the moon all part of the same biosphere, and therefore Earth-moon travel was protected as a result. So when we looked at categorization schemes, et cetera, starting in 1983, the moon was largely left out. And it was left out because it was supposed to be like an old home week. So in NASA's implementation of the same recommendations, the moon was left out there. But in COSPAR, it incorporated the, in the written document that the moon was category one for Florida contamination. So there you have it at the end of the 80s. You've got uh, in the early 2000s, you've got category one for the entire moon. And it could have been left like that. But there are a number of people who read what category one was supposed to mean and saying the moon isn't of interest to the story of organic chemistry and biological evolution. And I don't think that anybody thought that that was really true. As a result, the category one assignment of the moon was clearly wrong in some areas. And as a result, the NASA Advisory Council's Planetary Protection Advisory Committee, in particular Carly Peters, uh, recommended that NASA and Coast Guard should work together to investigate whether the permanently shaded areas near the lunar pole should be protected. During the Apollo program, and for many years after, the moon was viewed as a waterless world. In the past decades, evidence for water ice at the lunar poles has been returned by orbiting spacecraft. There are permanently shadowed regions, PSRs, where ice is believed to exist. It would be a tragedy if we contaminated these regions before we have studied them in pristine condition. Again, John Rimmel. The NASA Advisory Council's Planetary Protection Advisory Committee, in particular Carly Peters, uh, recommended that NASA and Coast Guard should work together to investigate whether the permanently shaded areas near the lunar pole should be protected. So, in the 2008 discussions, the scientific concern was that organic volatiles released anywhere on the moon could make their way to the cold traps of the poles. That was the central concern. Now, we didn't talk about cold traps and caves at the time, etc. But there was no concern about biological contamination of the moon. Nobody wanted to go ahead uh, on a regular robotic mission and take biological samples, uh, something you might think about with people for the reasons that the ICBC liked their microbial monitoring and so did the uh, operational medicine people. But nobody was concerned about biological contamination per se. After the workshop and the business meeting of the panel, the wording of the resolution was given there. Basically, the Earth's moon was changed to Category 2 by Coast Guard because of the potential for missions to disrupt polar volatile deposits. Now, we didn't get into the exact amount of material you needed to do that. Uh, and small amounts, clearly not a big problem. 
um, if they never leave the local area. But for large amounts, and we're talking about human-sized scale landers with uh, exhaust gases, et cetera, et cetera, uh, very, and crashing, by the way, very likely those materials could be detectable. And that's what Category 2 meant. I will also point out that this is not an organic archive. You do not have to keep these materials in a warehouse, bonded or otherwise, at some space center, which is something that we have done with certain uh, earlier space flight um, opportunities like Voyager. NASA has an Office of Planetary Protection whose function is mandated by law and by policy. Andy Spry's day job is with the SETI Institute, S-E-T-I. That's uh, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Spry is also employed by the Office of Planetary Protection and NASA headquarters. So just some context from the Office of Planetary Protection side uh, on planetary protection for the moon. Uh, this is the agency's attempt to lean into the Independent Review Board recommendation. It says NASA should study how much of the moon's surface and subsurface should be designated planetary protection category one versus planetary protection category two. So previously, the, the moon was a category two target. All of it was considered the same. And, and clearly, as our, our knowledge of uh, the lunar environment changes, but also our desire to go and explore there is pushing us down a path where we want, want perhaps want to keep some places cleaner than others to allow expeditious exploration, but at the same time, make sure we get all the science. We're well aware that the, the agency's idea about what the best approach is not necessarily what the science community would think. So again, we're soliciting this input from yourselves to make sure that we get the right balance between the science and the exploration. And so there is a potential to modify the need in particular in response to an ongoing study, which is taking place under the newly formed Committee on Planetary Protection. In particular, an open item is, is the story of the volatiles at the moon. We expect to incorporate the endpoint of this activity, so the input from the, the COPP, the input from this workshop, the NID uh, itself, into a longer-lived planetary protection document, which will be the formal agency policy going forward. So I did want to highlight the NID versus the current Coast Bar policy. The NID differentiates the permit shadow regions and historic sites as carry 2L as some place that we have an interest in collecting science from, and that leaves the remainder or the bulk of the moon as a carry 1L target. So the, the carry 2 in the Coast Bar characterization is the only significant requirement is an administrative one to collect an inventory of the landed organics. But if you talk to the community, the idea that you have a record of solid material polymeric material on, on the surface of the moon is not that interesting or useful. You, we can generally see that risk, and there is no clear guidance on how much contamination of that nature is too much. And in contrast, the carry 2L identifies just the biologicals, which are potentially an invisible risk to water resources for future exploration. And that's also the reason for including monitoring of waste from crude missions. And in particular, another feature of this NID is it's the first time that NASA has included crude missions in the planetary protection policy for the agency for some time, so since the end of the Apollo era. So that's another step towards you know, future crude exploration of the lunar surface and then onto Mars. Basically, if you're categorized as a 1L mission, then as soon as you have that categorization, you're done. 
So the intent is to, to make it very straightforward for folks who are doing exploration in those non-2L categorized zones, the historic sites and the PSRs, to actually do their work. And then the comparison between the 2L and the category 2 from COSPAR is really a change from the organic compounds to the biological materials and then the introduction of a record keeping for biological waste for food emissions. Other than that, the reporting would be similar. It's important to note that there's no restriction on where you can go. You just need to tell us these things about where you're going there, when you're going there. Or from a science perspective, the, res the restriction is not on whether we can go there or not. It is simply the level of bookkeeping, if you like, that you have to do to be permitted to go there. Rather than looking at the volatiles versus how we measure contamination of the sites, it's more what science do we want to get out of the sites and then backfill with how we should protect them. So we're looking at how do we protect what we know, but also how do we protect what we don't know about uh, permanent shadow regions. And are there discriminators between PSRs? Should we make any PSRs uh, of type or location off limits? And, and what's the recommendations for classification of these? And similar for the historic site, what determines the value of a site from a science perspective? What sites are of no or inconsequential value and what sites are of highest value? And again, a recommendation for classification, although in this case, it's going to be identification of, you know, these are, are worthy and these are less worthy. Uh, with a note that in this consideration, any spacecraft remains a property of the original owner in, in the terms of the Outer Space Treaty. Anthony Colapret is a scientist at the Ames Research Centre at the southern end of San Francisco Bay. He outlined some of the things that need to be considered in regard to planetary protection. The ones I'm going to talk about a little bit, just kind of summarize with respect to contamination of the moon, is Elcross, Laddie and Viper. They're all a little different in, in that they provide, I think, a slightly different each one a slightly different perspective on this problem. Elcross and Laddie were Cat 1, no restrictions, because they were baseline, the projects were baseline prior to 2008, therefore grandfathered in, if you will, into the older categorization scheme. Viper is a Cat 2L. Contamination matters to the science you're doing. It's not just that you're, you're worried about contaminating the object you're going to, you're worried about contaminating your own observations. So every single mission develops a materials list and this is also driven by engineering requirements you there are certain products materials that outgas quite a bit or otherwise don't behave in uh, in space well you develop a very detailed materials list so you can understand or verify that you don't have prohibited or against best practices materials from an engineering standpoint this is done with or without a planetary protection guideline so for example Elcross and Laddie did these things, even though there was no uh, motivation from planetary protection to do, to do that. It's just you do it because you're trying to maintain science. And I, I point out, you know, we've, we've already uh, in pre previous years have put human remains on, on the moon. Uh, ashes of Gene Shoemaker were deposited into Shoemaker Crater by the Lunar Prospector spacecraft back in. So now I'm just going to run through each of those missions and give a little bit more background, and hopefully it'll kind of provide some framework. Elcross was a, kind of a unique beast in that we uh, had the goal to understand and identify what the observed excess hydrogen was at the poles. And 
we had this idea that instead of bringing uh, mass with us, we're going to use the spent upper stage of the Atlas V rocket, the Centaur, and we use that as an impactor. So this brought with it a whole lot of interesting contamination control problems. And, and so again, to my point, we weren't necessarily focused on contaminating the moon, but we were interested in protecting our observations from terrestrial contamination. So this was quite unique, this mission, because we were using a piece of hardware that was provided as a service. And so this, I think, is very analogous in some ways to uh, the current CLIPS commercial landed payload service that is flying payloads to the moon over the next few years. The United Launch Services, NASA's launch services, don't typically take requirements from a payload in terms of contamination or other otherwise. They are a service that you buy, like you buy an airline ticket, you buy a launch service. However, we had these requirements, so we had to enter into contracting negotiations with ULA, United Launch Alliance, with regards to the Centaur rocket. And we uh, had asked them to do a number of things, vent all the O2 and H2, uh, blow all the hydrazine out, measure how much is blown out, monitor it, special paint, special command control. You know, this thing is only meant to survive a few hours. We really pushed the, the the limits of what you could do with an upper stage after it's delivered the, the spacecraft on its way. So the LADI mission then was a completely different beast in that it was sanctioned to, directed to go to the moon and actually measure the exosphere prior to all the upcoming human activity that was planned. This is just prior to, you know, constellation period when it's expected to be a lot more lunar activity. And there has been. Um, and so Laddie went there to really try to characterize the pristine as it is then. Uh, exosphere it had several instrument, instruments on it, an ultraviolet spectrometer and a neutral mass spectrometer and a dust counter. The UVS and the NMS, the spectrometers, were really there to look for small variations in exospheric species. And as such, they were very sensitive, especially the mass spectrometer. Those of you who who work with mass spectrometers know this, uh, very sensitive to the outgassing of the spacecraft. And, and LADI was a composite, its structure was composite, so there was a lot of concern and effort that went into understanding what that contamination was. Uh, there was design that went into the spacecraft that controlled the flow of outgassing away from instruments. In flight, there was burns that were done specifically so that the mass spectrometer could measure the exhaust to get its contribution. Likewise, uh, UVS did similar observations too. So there was a lot that went into the con contamination control plan for LADI specific to making very small measurements. That's really important. And uh, as you probably all know, we had the uh, fortuitous opportunity to monitor the exosphere during a landing of uh, the Chang'e 3 lander in northern Mariembrium. But it was, uh, at the time, we didn't see any impact to the exosphere. Now there was a small, increase in water that Dana's teasing out of it, the problem potentially, but the problem was it was buried in the geminid meteor showers uh, water signature. So we saw a relatively strong sodium and, and water increase during the geminids associated with those meteoroid impacts. But what that tells me is that the impact was small relative to natural water occurrences at the time. It's something we should consider in the future is having an orbiter and a slightly better orbit to monitor perturbations by landings. So on the Viper, Viper is a fairly large golf cart-sized rover that's going to explore a, a region of about 10 kilometers across at the South Pole. 
its intent is really to help us verify some of these surface observations, observations, remote sensing observations at the surface. It will have a one meter drill, appropriate instrumentation to characterize ices, vapors, it's got a mass spectrometer, near infrared spectrometer, et cetera. Isotopes are, are important so we can really understand sources and sinks. And, and again, to that point, because it has these sensitive instruments, it has a very strict contamination control plan, just like Laddie had. So we understand that the, what's going to be outgassed, where it's going to be outgassed. For example, the conversation the other day was venting the outgassing, any outgassing out the sides away from the surface deliberately. So we, whatever's outgassing from interior to the rover initially is actually going directed away from the surface. And that's for observations, not necessarily to keep the moon clean. That's a nice thing to do, but not to contaminate our observations. Uh, and there's a number of other onboard calibrations and other activities that we do as part of the measurement protocol to understand the difference between what we've brought and what's actually there. In the United States, there is a review board overlooking planetary protection. One event rang alarm bells in the planetary protection community. Unknown to the public at the time of launch, the Israeli lunar lander Bereshit carried tardigrades. Now, Bereshit crashed, likely spreading the tardigrades into the lunar regolith. Amanda Hendricks is on the American Planetary Protection Board, which made some recommendations. A major recommendation Again, very basic, but because of advances in knowledge and technology since the Viking era, NASA's planetary protection policies and implementation procedures should be reassessed. <laughs> we know so much more about so many bodies in our solar system than we used to, and we know more about different regions on these bodies. You know, we need to be reassessing the planetary protection guidelines. And by the way, this is probably going to require more funding to the Planetary Protection Office to really be effective. Another major recommendation is that NASA should reassess its planetary protection guidelines at least twice per decade with an IRB-like body. And again, this is kind of in line with the um, finding that, you know, we're really talking about a three to five year horizon with our work here. We need, these need to be revisited uh, every few years. And similarly, NASA should establish a standing forum for the discussion and resolution of emergent planetary protection issues. The forum should include um, input from government, private sector, and even uh, perhaps non-U.S. private sector enterprises. A major finding is that there's generally a lack of clarity concerning planetary protection requirements and implementation processes, particularly for non-NASA missions. And this really is impeding the development of private sector planetary exploration. And so flowing from that is a major recommendation that NASA should clarify its policy for exercising planetary protection authority over primarily non-NASA space activities that have some level of NASA involvement. And also to further encourage the development of private sector planetary activities, NASA should offer a greater degree of planetary protection expertise and tools to new and emerging actors in planetary protection. NASA should study how much of the moon's surface and subsurface could be categorized as um, category one versus category two, because we know now that uh, as of 2008, from the Coast Bar guidelines, the moon, the whole entire moon is category two. 
And so now that we know more about the moon and we know about ice existing near the lunar poles, um, maybe maybe those regions could um, remain cat two, whereas the rest of the moon might be able to be categorized at, at cat one. Also related to the moon, and this is about more um, accountability really, but we had a finding that it is impractical for launch providers or satellite hosts to definitively determine the biological content of every payload. Biological materials intentionally added by a bad actor are especially challenging for launch providers to monitor or report as they can be further obscured by falsified verification or inaccurate documentation. So this is clearly an outcome of the uh, Beresheet lunar lander incident where the launch customer placed tardigrades onto that lunar lander. So the, the recommendation that follows from that finding is that breaches of PP reporting or other requirements should be handled via sanctions that hold the root perpetrator accountable rather than increasing the verification and regulatory burden on all actors. Perhaps some future mission will visit the Beresheet crash site and check if any of the tardigrades are still alive. <laughs> 